0: Well, this past week, just when we start hearing good economic news, houses being sold, jobs going up in our area, good news, then you get somebody working on a uh, computer as a trader who somehow messes up a million with a billion in the stock markets, and the stock markets fly down a 1,000 points. Anybody wake up that day thinking, yeah, our economy is just crazy. A little nuts, maybe stupid. Um, how is it that with just a mistake of a keyboard, people's lives just drop in shambles? Life is fragile. Economy is fragile. Community is so fragile. It's not even. You don't even have to have a lie to mess up a community. All you need is just someone misunderstanding somebody. And everything just goes crazy. Isn't it amazing how fragile life is? And when you understand that, you appreciate that, you realize it, you come across a passage like what we will do today in John chapter 16. It kind of stands out, this, this one phrase. Uh, in fact, I just want to read that one phrase to you. If you want to, you can turn with us to John 16. We're going to look at verse 16, especially through 22. Uh, but he says... Just this little phrase, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In this world of everything being so fragile, you catch this phrase where Jesus says, you are going to have a joy that's irrevocable. You're going to have a joy that's so secure that no one can take it from you. That is different. I hope you understand how different this is, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, this joy of a disciple, the joy of a disciple, and the reason why I want to talk about today is because the metaphor that Jesus uses for the joy of a disciple is motherhood, motherhood. Uh, and so if you will just uh, look in this, in John 16, as as we're all turning there, getting ready to read this, it, that is, if you remember, when we did Monday, Thursday, those of you who were with us, John 16 is, is part of that passage that Jesus spoke in that last Thursday uh, service or Thursday time he had with the disciples before the cross on Friday morning. That was the time where he instituted the Lord's Supper as, as part of the Passover, and so uh, as, we, as we look in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we have all of Jesus' teaching of that night. So some people think, well, he could have been teaching this as they were gathered together, or he could have been teaching and declaring this as they were walking, meandering through the streets of Jerusalem, going uh, outside the gates down the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, or to the Mount of Olives. Uh, either way, it doesn't change the, the poignancy of the moment much. It's, uh, these are the last things he's going to be able to tell them before they witness the cross. This is the last things he's telling them before they betray him. Uh, and not just Judas, but many others. And so this is a, a time where he's encouraging them especially. In fact, John chapter 16, one of the prominent teachings of this chapter is about the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you find this in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, verse 10, 11. He, he's emphasizing the spirit of God that's going to come that's going to be the other comforter. And that is important for him to go away. It's important for him to go to the cross. It's important for him to be, to be resurrected so that the spirit of God can reside with him. And he says, this is going to be a better, better situation than how it has been the last three years. And so uh, in verse, 20, verse 12, 13, 14, 15, he says, all that is mine belongs to you. And then in verse 16, he starts throwing out these phrases that kind of confuse the disciples. And as we read it, we'll realize, yeah, this is kind of confusing. Um, We've got the benefit of knowing what's going to happen the next three days after uh, this this dialogue. They don't. And they're utterly confused with what Jesus is saying. And so let's just read this together, beginning with verse 16. And let's go through verse 22 and, and look at the joy of a disciple. And so let's stand as we read this together. A little while, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Well, you got to understand, that's a little confusing. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does this mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You may be seated. So let's just talk a little bit about that confusing phraseology. Uh, As we look back on it historically, we understand, yes, they are going to Friday morning, they're going to just in a few hours get to the point where they won't see him anymore, in fact, the one who does stay, John, will see him die on the cross. And so for three miserable days, sorrow-filled days, weeping, uh, days filled with a weeping and lament, they also understand we don't see Jesus. And then, as we read historically, the Sunday of Easter, there's the resurrection there are witnesses of Jesus Christ now. The disciples themselves will see Jesus. and In fact, uh, we see that this is a pro- prophecy that is fulfilled later on in the book of John. Uh, John says, chapter 20, verse 21, when, when he shows himself, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so there is a, a gladness that it comes when they see the resurrection. But I think even more significantly, that when Jesus is ascended to the Father... He says, I want you to wait. I want you to wait until the Spirit of God comes. And that's what we know as Pentecost occurs 50 days after Easter. The Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes upon the disciples of that day. And it is then, I think, that Jesus is especially talking about. uh, He says, look, this is important for me that I'm going to go away. But there's going to be a time when I'll be reunited with you through the Spirit of Christ. In which it will be so much better, and the joy will be there. And on that time, you will not have to ask me any questions because you will have no need to ask me questions because the Spirit of God is there within your heart at that moment in time. And so, uh, we can say that he's talking about this moment when they'll see him again as the resurrection, yes, but even more so. When the Spirit of God is residing within them. And so this is what is foreshadowing. And then he talks about the verse twenty. Notice that phrase, truly, truly I say to you, whenever you hear that, or maybe if you have King James, it says, Verily, verily, and it is a way of, of Jesus emphasizing something. It's just the double Aramaic here. He says, He says, This what I'm about to say is really important. Listen. Uh, so if you ever hear me say, Listen, listen, okay, this is what Jesus is saying. Listen, listen. Uh, this is critical. This is very important for you to get this. So what is so important? You're going to weep and lament. You're, you're going to cry like a baby. You know that, That's what Jesus is telling them here. You're going to weep and lament, but the world's going to party. They're going to rejoice. They're going to be happy. You'll be sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Listen, the first thing we learn from this statement is that disciples' joy is a transformed sorrow. The disciples' joy is a transformed sorrow. What he's saying here is that, he says, your sorrow, notice what it says in verse 20, your sorrow will turn into joy. He's not saying that you're going to have a distracting joy that's going to wash away the sorrow. He's he's not going to say that it's going to be added into it. It's not going to be a replacement joy, but it's going to be a resulting joy from what you're witnessing that will cause sorrow, that same thing that you're witnessing is going to cause sorrow, is going to also cause joy. It is resultant, and it all points to the same event. This is highly significant. He says, it's kind of like this, this metaphor. He brings out the metaphor of having a baby. He says, that same event, verse 21, that causes sorrow, because the hour has come, that same event verse 21 will cause joy because a human being is born into the world. I think Jesus picked this, this passage or this parable for a very important reason. You remember go back to Genesis 3? Remember Genesis 3? Those of you who were with us a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, we were studying Genesis 3, the consequences of sin. You remember one of the consequences of sin that God gave to Eve in Genesis 3 is that their childbearing will be done with anguish. So, whose choice was it that mothers have babies with great pain and anguish? Whose choice? Well, well, it was God's choice. God God gave, gave that consequence. No, God gave a consequence of man's choice. When man... Adam and Eve chose to say, I want to live life apart from God. I want to be independent of him. God says, okay, fine, you get the independence that you want, but you just need to know there's going to be some results that come from that. And the one of the results is women having children filled with anguish and pain. That is a result. So that is the world that we live in. It's not the world as God made it, all right? It is the world as man made it out of what God started. So when there is anguish that's going on, it is a resultant of mankind's sin independence from God. But nonetheless, God still works on it, does he not? Because it is through having pain and anguish of labor that children come, that men are born, that women are born, humans come into this world. And so this is a, a good analogy for life as we know it. It's life that is filled with pain. You need to understand sin, disease, uh, the things of inequities of injustice, oppression, uh, earthquakes, tornadoes, the things that happen in this world that causes sorrow. a lot of those things didn't exist when God created this world. They came as a result of men striking out in independence. So in this world, there must be sorrow. There must be sorrow in this world because man stepped out in rebellion. But the beautiful thing is that God works still in the midst of that sorrow. You know that uh, I think it was maybe my sixth grade year in, in school, where the science teacher thought, saw fit to show us innocent eyes a video of childbirth. I'm, and I, you know they didn't hold back anything. I'm talking about that is good abstinence training right there. That haunted me. That scared me. You see this woman screaming on the video, yelling, and then they show why, and you're just grossed out. You're like, oh! As a sixth grader, I couldn't. I was like, what are you doing, teacher? You know, you're supposed to be helping us here. And and so, now, after witnessing four childbirths, uh, you know, they, they, they're they different. Each one of them are different. Uh, the last one was very memorable uh, in that we just were able to get there in time. Um, I was able to park the car. And by the time I got the park car there, they are rushing, seeking me out. And I come to my wife and <laughs> I said, um, are they able to do the epidural? No! It's too late. I thought, oh, okay, and then it's preceded by, "I can't do this." What do you do when your wife's telling you you can't do this? I'm thinking, well, honey, um, in my mind, I'm thinking oh, that's tough, you know. <laughs> I'm, <just> like, <laughs> you know? In mind, I'm like, you know, my mind well, this is going to happen, and so I, I know enough not to say that. And so I said, Well, let me just pray with you. That's all I could do. I can not do anything. I just, let's, let's pray. Let's talk to God and say, God, just give us the strength, give her the strength to go through this. You know, it, and so there's, there's each child, I, I think back of the anguish, the pain, the face that's there. But after four months, four months after that event, That face, that anguished face, has been multiplied a hundred times over by a face of joy, of a smiling face, of kisses. So if you ask any mother, would you trade, they'd say yes. Though my mom might be a little little fuzzy on that. (laughs) She almost died having me and, you know, well, we'll go there, but... You know, there is that same event that caused that anguish, that pain, later causes so much joy and smiles. Motherhood, is it not that mixture of sorrow and joy and the very same thing that causes you frustration and sorrow and anguish? is the same thing that causes joy in your life. Motherhood. Jesus says, consider motherhood. It's like that. That's how God can work. He takes those things, our sorrow, and he turns it to joy. Now, he's speaking specifically about the cross and the resurrection. Just in your life, disciple, in your life, John, in your life, James, Peter, Andrew, uh, what's causing you this lament, this weeping, will one day cause a great joy in your life. But I think that he's speaking on something that God also does across the board generally in a believer's life. Let me just bring you to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 3. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3 is one that meant something to Jesus. Here's why. When he had an opportunity to preach and teach on this in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth, he chooses this passage. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3 says... The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops. And he says, Today, the hearing of this has been fulfilled in your ears. He says, I, Jesus, I am the fulfillment before those who saw me grow up. I am the fulfillment of this passage. I proclaim the Lord's anointing. The Lord has anointed me. I'm binding up the broken heart. I'm proclaiming liberty. I'm opening up the prison of those who are bound. I'm proclaiming the years of the Lord's favor. Now, notice, in our grammar of this, there's no sentence, or there's no period, there's a comma. Jesus stops mid-sentence. He doesn't go on with the rest of the passage because it wasn't his to do yet. What remains? The day of vengeance of our God. It's going to happen. He didn't come to declare the day of vengeance of the Lord at the first time, but the second time he will. To comfort all who mourn, that still remains. To grant to those who mourn in Zion... To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planning of the Lord. That he may be glorified. You know what that tells me? Jesus still has jobs to do. And it still remains the day and time when those of us who walk in ashes and mourning. Because of the world that we live in. Because how they hate christ and what they do to us because this is just a sorrowful world god will one day redeem it it awaits him just as sure as he died on the cross just as sure as he rose again there will be a day he takes our mourning garments and gives us something of beauty instead of the oil of gladness he gives us a beautiful headdress instead of the ashes of this world see our jesus is the one who turns water into wine our Jesus is the one who takes those things that cause sorrow. And he is so powerful, so wise, so mighty, he turns it into something that causes joy. Our world can't do that. The best this world can do is distract us with entertainment. That's the best this world can offer. Our Lord is something different. Romans 8, 28, 29, Paul hit on this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All right, now, first of all, let me make some observations. That is a promise condition to those who love God. Let me tell you, there is what's called gratuitous evil. There is evil that exists with no good that can result. But for the believer, there is no such thing. God has claimed them. And He says, I'm going to work something in them. To those who love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now verse 29 gives us a little clue about this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, this good, this glory that God is working has something to do with us being Christ-like. Has something to do with us being like him. Restoring us to the sons of glory. How God first made us in his image. He says, I'm working in that. So what we learn here is that God is willing to to let the sorrow of this world, because this is the world system that we live in because we chose it this way, he says sorrow must happen, sickness must happen, disease, death, cursing, betrayals, these things must happen, but know this, that I am working in the midst of it all. You see, could it be that for the believer, the sorrow of life produces the joy of eternal life? All right. What do I mean by eternal life? Well, Jesus described it in this passage and in John, in the same speech, this is eternal life, that you may know God. Could it be that for the believer, the sorrow of this life, this temporal life, is there to produce the joy of eternal life, the joy of knowing God, in a greater way, a deeper way. So, the disciples' joy is a transformed joy. Yeah. So our attitude is, as Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. <laughs> as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Yes, we go through sorrow, but in the midst of sorrow, there is a, joycing, a rejoicing, that is an expression of faith that we believe that God is in charge, that he will do something to turn this to joy. And we don't know how, but somehow, someway, the thing that causes us the tears it just the thought could also produce a smile. I'm just saying that's the power of God do you believe it can you trust in that can you trust him now listen still further the joyous life of his disciple is that it is a joy only to those who rejoice in Christ notice verse 22 so you also you have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice will rejoice Why? Because they will see him. Now listen, you need to understand, you will only rejoice in seeing Christ if you want to see Christ. Okay? It is only to those who rejoice in Christ. If you have other joys in your life outside of Christ, that is your chief chief, uh, joy, then seeing Christ isn't going to do much for you. This joy flows from seeing him. and, And listen, this joy flows from him seeing us this house know how it's phrased? Verse 22, and I will see you again. Because Jesus will see you again, there's rejoicing. Not just that we see him, but that he sees us. Do you understand that as you walk now, because of the spirit of God that has been given to us, Jesus sees us right now. Every moment. While we sleep. As we think. As we work. As we worship. And as we sin, Jesus sees us. So this joy is founded upon the consciousness that Christ eyes upon us. Assumes that you take joy from being with Jesus. If you don't enjoy Jesus' presence, then this will not create joy in your life. But let me just make this statement. Heaven is not a place for those who just don't want to go to hell. Heaven is not that place for those who just don't want to go to hell. I, saw, I think that's probably um, the main motivation for a lot of people. I don't want to go to hell, so heaven's the other option. Heaven is, for a, is a place for those who are seeking God. Heaven is a place for those who love Jesus. Heaven is a place for those who take joy in seeing Jesus. So don't think that, oh, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to see Jesus. And yeah, heaven isn't going to be heaven for you here. Yeah, it sounds more like hell because your joy's not in Christ. If I see a a single trek mountain mountain bike trail, yeah, if you know what those are, it's just it's just it's a trail through the woods, just wide enough for your bike and yourself. I if I see that and I see a good full suspension mountain bike and a helmet, yeah, I'll take joy in that. I'll 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 be eager to go on that. My wife will not. That's, that's stuff that tortures made of. Um, but I found that as I do that, there are other guys and, and ladies that are a little bit more nuts than me. That They see a cliff and a bike and a helmet, and they get excited. I'm thinking, you're nuts, man. But they get excited because this is their place of adrenaline. And, and they like that. They get excited about So for those who have eyes toward that, for those who have a heart toward that adrenaline, for those who have skills toward a bicycle, then seeing that cliff and seeing a bicycle and a helmet creates joy. For other folks, it creates terror. Do you have a heart toward Christ? Do you love him? Is it someone that you long to be with? Now, notice as we read verse 22... And no one will take your joy from you. So still further note how the Lord declares the disciples joy as secure. Secure. No one will take your joy from you. So this is why the spirit of of God is critical. No one can separate you from the love of Christ through the spirit of God. No one's power. Who's going to pry the fingers of God from you? Who's capable of doing that? No one is capable. And so Jesus is saying, no one will take your joy from you. One, because I, once resurrected, will never die again. Because I am indestructible and I'll prove it through resurrection. And I will extend my presence to you through the Spirit of God. Verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to what I'm saying, that this is indestructible. It is not based on circumstances. It's not based on people. You know, a lot of times we need people to have joy and happiness in our life. Mothers, is Mother's Day the same when your kids aren't around you? It, it is more of a joyous thing when your kids are around you, and it's dependent on on these people. But Jesus is saying, when you have your joy in me... I will be there. You're not going to be worried about me going off somewhere. I'm not going to be sleeping somewhere. I am there. It is indestructible. It is secure. It is not based on circumstances. We went to Megiddo. I'm visiting that city. A lot of the ancient cities, if they were well prepared against the attacks, they would have wells, deep wells that they would have access to within the walls. So that, that when an enemy comes to try to starve them or thirst them out, Uh, into submission, they would have access to these deep wells of water. So it doesn't matter who was against them. They had all that they need. Listen, what Jesus Christ is, is a deep well. It is a deep well. That when the seasonal famines come through life, there is still resources for you to have joy in your life. That when there is still tragedy and diseases and devastation, accidents, Uh, financial woes, that there is a well of life deeper than all these things that are greater than marital disharmony, family disharmony, Jesus Christ still is beneath that and can sustain you in the midst of it. Now here's what you need to be careful of, the joy, the disciples' joy. What the world cannot wrest away from us, it will try to lure away from us. How? How? See, so all this is based on the fact that we have affection for Christ, that we have a heart toward Christ. So what, is, what does the world do? Well, if he can't wrest it away from us, if he can't take it away from us, then maybe it can tempt us to walk away from Christ. We spent this past week at Hilton Head. Uh, we have a family that had a, a place there, invited us to stay with them. Which, you know, free vacation is always good for me. And so we were there. And uh, I don't know if you've been to Hilton Head, but it's uh, it's, it's very nice, uh, luxurious. Um, and so we were riding our bicycles all through these bikeways and these beautiful Spanish moss hanging down from these oak trees. It's just it just beautiful scenes. And you just you're driving past one million dollar home after another. I mean, it's just like the whole island's filled with million dollar homes. Plus, and, it, and they're they're beautiful uh, homes. You see, you go by the golf courses and see golf courses that cost $130 to play on the golf course. And you look and you see, there's people playing on it. You know, it's crazy. Uh, the beautiful course. And we we uh, were right there near the harbor. where I don't know if you've seen the lighthouse there, the red and white striped lighthouse. So you, you go there and these boats, <laughs> just incredible yachts, just, you know, Trying to figure out how much does one of these things cost, um, we decided that we probably need to sell every home on our cul-de-sac to to equal out somehow the price of that yacht. You know, sometimes it's hard being in that scene. Um, it's not that you don't love Jesus. It's just that wow, that that's very appealing. That whoa, if we had money, wouldn't that be nice? Just let's just have a. Can we have? A, condo here maybe one one time a year or you know i don't want that boat but maybe a jaguar or, you know or, or, or can i maybe just play on that golf course you know that i don't want to be a member can i just play on it that there there is something that draws your heart so i was kind of telling myself i'm like oh look at that boat man i bet they are miserable washing that boat all the time <laughs> you know <laughs> try to talk yourselves into uh why you're in a better situation than they are you know um, it, it didn't work. I was like, "Well, they, they could hire somebody to do that, you know." Um, but but here's what did. I was studying this passage, thinking through this passage, and I said, "You know, the joy of owning a boat does not last. Golf courses, luxurious homes, prestigious places on coastal islands." does not give you a lasting joy. When it's all said and done, it's somewhere to lay your head. It's something to occupy your time. That's it. When it's all said and done, it's just a little bit more of a price tag to something that occupies your time. So what does? I say to this world, world, I do not believe your lie because it is your nature to lie. My life does not revolve about these things, whether I have a vacation home, whether I can retire here, whether I've got a boat here. That's not what my life is to be about because the joy is not full there and it's not secure there. And so we gather for Mother's Day and we get with our family and we think, oh, this is a happy place. This is a joyous time. I mean, life is about family. Is it? Families are still very fragile. Need we have any argument for how fragile a family can be? And even in the best Christ-honoring family, you still say goodbye. You still say goodbye. That joy doesn't last either. So what I argue for is I'm arguing for your extreme joy. Christ is arguing for it. He says, you know what? When I die, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to provide a victory for you. And I'm going to provide the spirit of God for you that will reside. So that when you see me, your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Let me ask you, do you have a joy that no one can take from you? Do you have a joy that death itself cannot take away from you? Do you have Christ? Is Christ your joy? That's the question. Let's pray.